Hello and welcome to the Private Capital Podcast. I'm Joe Riley. Today we are speaking to Ryan Eisenman, co-founder and CEO of Arch, a leading fintech startup that is a digital administrator for private investments. I thought it would be great to catch up with Ryan and get a look under the hood of a rapidly growing B2B SaaS company tackling one of asset management's persistent back office issues, such as K-1s and capital calls, as well as a look at how their focus on product and customer experience can help you stand out in a burgeoning fintech space. As someone who has personally struggled from the deluge of unstructured data in a family office, I'm always interested in how technology can solve this the ultimate of pain points. And Ryan and his team are on the cutting edge of applying new technology, including AI, to this area. We hear his founding story and how he and his two co-founders, Jason Trigg and Joel Stein, have approached pricing, market fit, handling data, and all the different types of customers and their individual challenges. Right after we recorded this interview, Arch closed a $20 million Series A, led by Menlo Ventures with Kraft Ventures, Quiet Capital, City Ventures, and Focus Financial joining. The group has over 200 customers, managing over $60 billion. Please enjoy my conversation with Ryan Eisenman. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Anything said by the guests or hosts should not be construed as legal or investment advice. Thanks for listening. I have to ask you, apparently they filmed Rushmore at your high school. Is that true? That is true. Yeah. <laughs> Before my time, but that is true. He does a great job because he went to my high school also. So he did go there. I think he went there and it was filmed partly at my high school and partly at another high school uh, in the same area. And did that accurately reflect your experience there? No, it was very different. My high school was a lot nerdier, probably less colorful. But, and, and I haven't seen Rushmore in a long time. So you grew up in Houston. Did you ever consider the oil industry or, say, becoming a geologist? thought that there were more things and other things that might have interested me beyond being a geologist, but there, there's a huge oil industry in Houston, and Houston's a fascinating place. Uh, doesn't participate in the same types of booms and bust cycles as the rest of the country. So in 2008, Houston was mostly unfazed because I think the oil industry was doing well at the time. And did you have an early interest in computers? Not in the same way that a lot of internet entrepreneurs did. I think it wasn't until the summer of 2013, I spent that summer in Tel Aviv. And that was one of my first like big entry points into the tech world. And we had a lot of exposure to the people that were running Google in Israel and in Africa and other entrepreneurs there. And so I think there's some kind of parts of that summer and that, that experience where I realized that there was a lot that was happening in the larger tech world. And that was a place where you could have a lot of impact. So did you spend any time with computers growing up? Did you get into gaming? No, I watched very little TV and played very few video games. My first computer game was Game Boy Color. And then after that, didn't really have any of the traditional gaming systems. And my parents didn't really believe in games that much or that kind of game and thought that it should be like outside and running around. And so didn't have that typical path to the tech world. Why did you study organizational behavior at Vanderbilt? Was that your first choice? Uh, yes. So I was thinking about where I wanted to go to college on this program. It aligned really well with how I wanted to learn about the world, which was studying kind of two opposing models, one being traditional economics and how the world is supposed to work, 
And then the other being behavioral economics and human psychology and how the world often does work. And then understanding the intersections between the two. Uh, a lot of the reason why we're doing what we're doing is because of the curiosity around how people make investments and how people make investment decisions. Uh, and uh, the tools that people need and the information asymmetry around investments and investment decisions. So it would back that up to what I studied in school and the, also the like change management parts of that major and that program. And you knew that before you went to school? To some degree. I'd always been interested in like how the world works and how people think and people interact. So when I heard about this major, it seemed perfect. And I just generally also knew that I wanted to do something in the broader business world. Just didn't know what yet. So it seemed like a good hybrid between the two. And is this, was Archer first company? First company, except for a car wash business when I was probably eight, nine, 10 years old and probably a series of lemonade stands and tried inventing a couple of things along the way, but first, first real company. So you're always interested in business. I'd always been interested in business. I've been keeping a list of notes of ideas for five or six years before starting art. So starting in probably 2012, 2013, some of them are okay. Some of them are pretty dismal. We can go through those another time, or I can put some random ones if you want to do at the end and see what we have in there. But I've always been interested in the intersection of what should exist in the world and what does exist. And sometimes there's a reason for that discrepancy. Another time it's just an opportunity way to happen. I'm curious what your initial conversations were like with Jason and Joel. What you guys are doing is addressing a major pain point for investors, but a lot of people have banged their head against this issue for years. Was there a moment of insight for you three? Was there some new tech or process that kind of was the seed for this? Yeah. The way I met Jason and Joel was through a private investor who had a lot of the problems we were solving. He is someone who had a lot of the complexity around being an investor, having 100 plus K1s to collect, lots of private equity funds, venture funds with commitments, performance, and inability to understand what was there. Conversations with him started slowly where he was like, hey, if you're interested in this space, you should meet Jason and Joel. They're really smart and really great engineers. And maybe the three of you would want to start something together. And so the first time I met Jason and Joel, it was in the basement of the Starbucks in the Empire State Building, which maybe has since gone through a renovation. At the time, it was dark and dingy and not the most glamorous place to meet. And we had probably a 20, 30 minute conversation probably was very awkward if you were to look back on it. It was like, hey, who are you? Okay. Are you interested in technology? Great. Me too. Are you interested in this space? Me too. Great. What do we do from here? I guess let's talk again next week. And then from that first entry point, started meeting on a weekly basis, first once a week. And then we essentially started to go full time, meet every day, validate the problem, see if this was something that one was worth investigating, worth building. Uh, and two, did we want to work together? So we essentially came to the conclusion of, yes, there's a problem here and there's something we should build. I was probably stubbornly dedicated to it from day one where I knew I wanted to build something in this space. Even if it was a bad idea, I probably still would have done it. Luckily, it was a good idea, or at least has proven to be a good idea so far. And then they're a little bit more analytical than I am. And so they really wanted to validate with data that there was a big enough market, enough clients, enough of a pain. So we spent the days together calling investors, advisors, accountants, attorneys, people that are involved in the investment world and asking them about their pain points and especially their pain points related to managing private and alternative investments. And this was all pre-seed? 
yes, hadn't raised a dollar of capital, then kept this guy up to date on what we were doing. And he, at one point, came back to us and was like, hey, yeah, if the three of you want to start this company, I would love to be involved. I'd love to be a client. Would love to invest. Would love to support you guys. And he became a informal advisor. We met with him weekly. learned a lot from him. And he was one of the first two test clients for the first version of our platform, which all it did at the very beginning was collect tax documents for clients. I'm interested in how you divvied up the asset management world and how did you decide what to tackle first? It's really hard when you first start to get Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan as a client. And it's hard even to get an investment advisor as a client. Like we had early conversations with Iconic and Epic and Brown Brothers Harriman and some of these like really large institutions. And they lovingly referred to us as two guys in a garage. They missed it. There's three guys in an apartment, but we were a very small team without traction in 2018. So who can you get as a client? You can slowly work your way through your clients and then their network and the people that have problems that are really early on the adoption scale as early adopters and get some of the smaller folks to start with you. And so that's what we focused on at the beginning. So it's individuals and it was family offices that had a lot of private investments and that this was a problem for, but they were willing to be experimental. And essentially what we traded was in return for you being a client, we'll listen to you, we'll try to understand what your needs really are and we'll build software that solves your needs. And at the beginning, we'll probably do more things manually than with technology around the edge of what we're building to actually solve problems for you while we put the actual infrastructure in place that's needed. And so how did you guys spend your time thinking about business processes and the workflows, especially in family offices and the big firms? The big thing for us was just to listen as much as we could and hear as much as possible around people's pain points. One of our early conversations was October 2017. We sat down with the CFO of a family office and he essentially walked us through, yeah, here's how we collect our K-1s. This is exactly what we do. They come in the mail, they come for these different portals, we print them, we take them to Susan, Susan marks them off a spreadsheet, then she puts them in this folder and we ship it to our accountants and like the step-by-step process. And then we asked another family how they did it and an investment advisor, how they managed this process and an accountant, what happens on their end? And then just started to sketch out, okay, here's the process. Here's what we think is really painful. Let's try to build software for around the pain and take the processes that are the least collaborative, the most manual, and build software there. What's the key to that? What is it that the family offices aren't able to do on their own? Obviously, a lot of the asset managers have tried to tackle this and failed. It's really hard for non-tech firms to build technology. And even the largest banks have now shifted from trying to build everything in-house to being willing to adopt best-of-breed software solutions because a lot of firms just aren't structured to one, be able to attract and retain top technical talent and two, structure their organizations around moving quickly and iterating with clients. That's what technology firms are really good at. And if you look at where a lot of solutions in the broader wealth management space come from, a lot of them are spun out of asset management firms or family offices or other types of firms, but don't have the software DNA. So what we're really trying to do from day one is have that software DNA with my two co-founders. They met each other at MIT 15 years ago, bring both within them very different perspectives around in software. Like Joel cares a lot about 
infrastructure and security and things that are scalable and like really clean code. Jason is a lot more around let's find a solution, hack at something really quickly and iterate quickly. And so the mix of the two of those with my commercial perspective, I think allows us to create user-friendly, secure, clean code that also isn't overly burdensome and that we can iterate on pretty quickly. But it's hard to create that DNA within firms that don't have a, a technical DNA to start. So let's dig in a little bit. What's involved with permissions now? What is the state of the art? Are you guys dealing with 30, 60 different APIs? Do people even have their own APIs? How do you range access and security for these very sensitive documents? At its most fundamental level, what we need to do as a company is take data and documents coming from hundreds or thousands of different sources, standardize it, and make it available to the end clients. End clients have lots of different perspectives. They're looking for different things. You have tax accountants that want to collect K-1s. You have investors that want to understand what's in documents and understand their performance or their balances. You have advisors or operations team members that need to run workflows. So everyone needs different things around this data set. So it's not just about supporting one user type, about this holistic view. And in order to get to that, you need to be able to collect and, and standardize information from every source. So from day one, this couldn't be an 80% solution. It needed to be able to comprehensively connect to every fund admin manager, asset manager out there. Then when we start to look at what technology is available, there are some APIs and some of these APIs don't give you exactly what you'd want. So there are APIs for documents where you don't get data out of the documents. There might be other APIs for data without getting documents. And then there might be ways to get both documents and data directly from the source. So very early on, we realized that we need to create our own automation uh, and we can't rely on the automation of a third party. And it's really nice when you can get perfectly automated information directly from the source. But in that absence, you figure out ways to pull documents down automatically, pull numbers out of documents automatically, validate that data, check it, and create the right kind of system to collect this information, whether you're collecting it from Blackstone and KKR and massive asset managers, or it's a real estate GP that just started and is emailing updates. And we have to be interoperable and able to collect information across all those different sources. How does that actually look? How does it, If I'm your family office client, and I'm getting emails and I'm getting K-1s and, or I'm getting a lot of info from Goldman. How do you guys know on your end what I need to see? Is this a, like a conversation that we would have to have or is the onboarding more automated? The onboarding is a place that we've spent a lot of effort automating, especially over the last six to 12 months. We want to make it really easy to get on board. I think bigger than the cost of a solution like ours, people probably think of the like work associated with getting onto a solution as the bigger cost than the financial cost. And so for us, all you do is you essentially provide a list of investments and the right signed authorization letter. We've been, we've digitized the majority of that process with DocuSign to make it much easier for folks. And then we'll run the onboarding, which is a big thing that we do to just from day one say, hey, this is going to be a different experience than the majority of the experiences you've had in the past. We care about you as a client. We want to take care of you. Why is that? One, we want you to be successful. And two, we know our easiest path to our next client is through our existing clients. So if we make you extremely happy with our platform and level of service, then you'll probably share it with your friends. What does it ultimately look like? It's much closer to what's available right now on the public markets instead of the private markets. So it looks like you log into your MorganStanley.com or your Goldman.com account or your eTrader Schwab, 
and you see all of your investments and your balances in one place instead of having to keep an Excel spreadsheet and a document folder and go through your Outlook or your Gmail to find your documents. We do all that hard work of putting it into a digital format for you. And then we send you a once daily or once weekly summary of everything that we've pulled on your behalf. I'm interested in how you guys have talked about internally and how you think about pricing at a high level. Because obviously one of the issues with asset management in general is the level of customization. And if it's just a subscription, is that actually going to cover your costs? Do you have to have add-ons, et cetera? So I'm curious as to what your discussions were like about that. We essentially started charging one cost at the beginning and tried to make it really simple. So we wanted to align our price with the value we provide. So instead of it being based on amount of assets or the number of seats, we made it based on the number of investments because there's a tangible cost saving for every investment we manage and a tangible benefit per investment, whether it's a $10,000 investment or $10 million investment, uh, the amount of work replaced is about the same. So that's how we thought about things from the very beginning in order to make it really simple for our clients. How do you guys think through the ontology problems? Who gets to see what, or is that left to the client? Is that left to the partner? So it's left to the client to set this up in the way that they think is most effective for them. But we made it so that our platform can be separated into the different modules. So you can say, okay, this person is a tax user. They should just have access to the tax documents and the information there. Another user might be focused on investment decision-making. They need access to all the information and all the balances, and especially the focus there should be on the quantitative and qualitative reports coming from the managers they invest in versus someone else that's an operations user. The main thing for them may be collecting all the statements and making sure that capital calls are completed and that the right documents get to the right people. And so you can permission based on the different pieces of functionality and on the client accounts. So if you are a multifamily office or an RAA and you have dozens or hundreds of clients, you can decide who has access to which clients and which entities for each client as well. And how is the product different for individual investors versus institutions? What do institutions do differently? Are they doing things more efficiently or less efficiently? More or less efficient is, I think, hard to to decide. But what's different for bigger and smaller investors? We have a couple add-on tools that a a bigger investor is more likely to use. Uh, One is the ability to understand the portfolio companies within your funds and some of the correlations across those. As we found, that's something that people seem to be more interested in recently, especially as they think about the overlap between managers. And then the other big difference is if you are managing lots of different entities and lots of different clients, you'll have the ability to drop down into a single client or see the information holistically across every client. So if you're running an investment advisory firm and you want to see, hey, what's the status of our tax documents? You can go into Arch and be like, great, we've collected four out of 5,000 tax documents. Here are the thousand that we're missing. And they can look at it on a global level or look at it for their client, Susan B. Anthony, and see that Susan has 25 out of her 28 documents as well. What about differences between family offices and RAAs? Some family offices look a lot like RAAs. And I think a lot of it just depends on the types of integrations and the number of people that might be using the platform. And so to your earlier question around 
the level of customization to make this so that usable for the different types of clients. What we've really focused on is the workflow elements that everyone needs to do. So it's like everyone needs to collect their K1s. Everyone needs to complete their capital calls and everyone needs to have really clean data. Whether they're looking at that clean data within our platform or they're taking that data and using it within a platform like an Adapar, Black Diamond, a Sage Intact, we have ways to export that data into those other platforms. So then we don't have to be the company focused on customization. We can have something that everyone that invests in funds needs and then partner with other types of leading platforms in order for people to create the reports and the business intelligence that they need there as well. Do you ever think about the data itself? Do you ever think about some people call, think of data as fuel? They think of it as a product. They think of it as an asset. I'm sure at this point you probably dream about data, but I'm curious if you give any thought to it. One of our kind of fundamental things as a company is thinking about our own Maslow's hierarchy. And so for us, it's at the bottom of this pyramid is the workflows. So we want to automate workflows and give people time back. Uh, so that's the first and most basic need that we're addressing. Then on top of it, we're giving people better data. Because we standardize these workflows, then we give people really clean, repeatable, structured, understandable data in a vacuum isn't that useful. So it's like, how can we then take that data and allow you to generate insights out of that data via our tools or via other tools? And then we hope that those insights will lead to better decisions, which will lead to better outcomes. And so I think there's a lot more to do at this data layer of how do we, with the data that we have, help you structure it, help you understand it, help you match your own proprietary data with data that's out in the markets. So we're testing a feature right now with a, a section of our clients that is essentially taking the qualitative updates that you receive from managers. So when a manager writes their eight-page investor letter, we'll give you a AI summary of that investor letter. And so instead of having to read eight pages, you can, within your daily update for March, understand the gist of that letter and the most important things there. And then you can decide where to spend your time and how to allocate your time to make better decisions. And we want to continue to build those kind of tools that support people in their decision-making and in their asset allocation. And how did you guys scale? When did you decide to take on more employees and who did you hire first, engineers or sales? It was three of us for a year and a half. Then we hired our first engineer, and this is probably in 2019. And then we hired an operations team member. And the idea was we want to continue to, with a small team, really iterate with our clients and then start to specialize and focus as a team. Beginning of 2021 was when we took on our second round of capital, which was our like first real institutional round of capital. And that allowed us to start to scale. So we went from five to eight people that year, went from eight to 24 last year. And this year we've gone from 24 to about 60 people and still have some ambitious plans to scale our team and and scale the company from here. With the idea of we didn't want to scale until we had product market fit. We always want to make sure that our customer growth leads our team growth and that we're a product-focused organization. So out of the 60 or so people at the company, only if four or five, if you include myself, are in our sales, marketing, go-to-market motion. The rest of our company is focused on building the platform and delivering the platform. And that's what we want our DNA to be. Be the most focused on solving customer problems and the most focused on innovating on the actual technology that's available to clients and lead with that. And we know that if we lead with product, it makes it much easier for our sales team to do work because 
we then have a much better product to sell and we have warm introductions coming from current customers. That makes that part of the process a lot easier as well. You mentioned in another interview, this really cool concept called power distance. I was wondering if that influences the way you think about how you structure your company. Yeah, we want to create this situation for everyone to have a lot of impact here. And so if you come and perform well, we promote people quickly. And two, we want even the lowest level employee to participate in the way that we think about delivering good products, delivering good service, and improving as a company. So we're not rigid in only the like top leaders' ideas can be heard. We want this to be something where we source ideas all across the company. Everyone feels empowered to make a difference. And, and I think there's a lot of great business lessons out there. And there's like great insights we can take from the hospitality industry. So I believe it's Ritz Carlton that has the, the concept where every employee can uh, allocate a certain amount of budget towards making a uh, guest experience great. And we want that same mindset where it's every employee can go out of their way to make someone's experience here great. And I think that's really important in the DNA that we're building as a company. Can you explain that concept, the power distance? Yeah. The, the general idea is what's the difference in the ability to like lead and it's really how hierarchical a company or a country is in how empowered the most senior person and how empowered the most junior person is to speak up, to make decisions, and to challenge authority. Um, and so in a company or in a country with a high power distance, you would see a big difference between senior and junior employees and their ability to like self-actualize and their ability to have influence. And in a company or a country with a low power distance, you would have a junior employee or who would be able to actually contribute to the conversation and what a company is able to do. Are there any particular companies that you admire that you model yourselves on? We think that Bloomberg has done a really great job. I was talking to someone senior from there a couple of weeks ago, and I was asking some questions around how you would approach certain things and what they really focus on is having the best product. Uh, and I think that's something that we really admire uh, and want to reflect, where it's like we, we think a lot about over the short run, markets are a voting machine, and over the long run, markets are a weighing machine. And we think the same thing is true in selling software and in serving clients, where if you just like really have the best product and care the most and you learn the most, then over the long run, you'll have, be rewarded with the opportunity to serve the greatest number of people and have the greatest impact. Um, and so that's something that like really reinforced that uh, for us in, in the way that we build software and serve our clients. How do you think this affects the way a CIO manages their portfolio? Obviously, they're freed up by a lot less paperwork and headaches. But what new levers could you imagine that they would have that they don't have now because they have access to this kind of leverage? Um, I think it's just the insights and the data availability. Um, oftentimes, even CIOs of very large firms have to struggle with accessing the latest information coming from their managers. They're not able to stay on top of what's happening across the managers that they allocate to. Uh, on top of that, being able to have tools that pragmatically feed you insights and help you understand correlation between assets, how you're allocated, how those assets are performing is really important. If you are 45 days lagged or 90 days lagged or 180 days lagged, that lag is 
becoming a bigger and bigger thing in the current world and how quickly things can shift. And so if you don't have like the up to the minute or up to the latest update view of the world, you're behind your peers and they might be able to make decisions faster and in in a more advantageous way. One example of that is a very large pension fund we were working with. Uh, Essentially, what they needed was they needed more frequent updates. So instead of the like once daily update, they needed to know multiple times during the day the capital calls and distributions that they're receiving. Because if a private equity firm or venture firm is distributing stock uh, to their LPs, there might be in some situations a rush for the exits where those that are able to action those distributions quicker sell quicker and there might be a meaningful difference between selling in four hours and selling in 12 hours and selling in three days. And so that level of data can actually lead to pretty tangible financial outcomes um, relative to other uh, decisions that people need to make. There's always a fee compression focus in the RIA space. Do you think products like yours will create efficiencies or do you think that the wealth managers will just take the savings and hire more salespeople? It's a great question. I think what one thing that we allow people to do is to create different business models. Uh, so we have some RAs that have essentially created a business model relying on our software as an entry point to what they do. Uh, and so it's, we, we'll start with first helping you manage and understand your investments. And then in doing a good job there, uh, we'll get the uh, opportunity to advise on your investments. So that's one thing that we think we can do. Two, certainly we can give people more margin so they don't have to continue to deploy internal resources on these problems and scalable margin. So in a lot of ways, we're like buying AWS where you buy server space in Amazon and you buy capacity with Arch. So if you need to take on additional clients, you don't need to scale your team or think about the operational headaches around that. You can just onboard them to Arch and that part's taken care of. We want that to be more and more true over time as we build more of the core infrastructure that firms need. And I think it also allows some firms that don't do a lot of alternatives because they're afraid of the operational work to do more alternatives because then they now have tools to manage and understand those assets in a way that they wouldn't before. Uh, and part of that story will be allowing this data to be portable to more and more systems like the Fidelities and Schwabs and versions of the world. And potentially see this in your brokerage statement in the future and with the other assets that matter to you and your clients. Where do your customers come from? How do you, what's your go-to-market strategy? How do you think about yourselves in the marketplace? The biggest focus is on warm referrals from current clients. And that's been a big contributor to our most meaningful clients. And we want to have this be even less of a shout from the rooftops, but more of a whisper campaign where friends say to friends, hey, you should use this because this can really make your life easier. Uh, and that matters the most. Channel partners are really valuable to us. Uh, so by solving firms' clients' problems, the firms will send us to their other clients. And so that could be technology companies that also serve a similar audience, banks that serve these clients, consultants in the world. Uh, so that's a big focus for us is doing a great job and then being rewarded with more clients because of that. And then the other thing is just being out in the physical world, interacting with people at conferences, uh, telling our story in forums like this. Um, and we want to start doing a little bit more writing and leading of conversations uh, in the coming months as well. 
What kind of things do you guys kick around like on an offsite, like integrating payments, doing payroll, bill play? There's all sorts of things that, that I'm sure you guys think about in the future. Payments is really interesting. And there's a lot of traditional challenges with payments. And then there's bigger challenges with payments coming up. If you think about the AI tools that are available to us today, those tools aren't just available to good people. They're also available to bad people. And there's ways to use AI for impersonating people, whether it's impersonating their actions or their voices. And, and so I think a lot of the like traditional way that people verify and confirm payments will be changed. We were talking to an investment advisor yesterday that is starting to have a like secret passcode that they'll use to verify that a person is really the person. And, and that's like a, a stopgap solution that isn't perfect. And so we think that there are things that we should be thinking about and tools that we should be building to structure that process and fight it against a lot of the potential for fraud in, in the broader payments area. So payments, integrations, insights, how we can deliver more insights to folks are some of the big areas that we're thinking about. And it's if someone has a problem, if there's friction, we're constantly listening to our clients on what we can build next. I'm curious how much you think about product You've already mentioned it several times and, and what a good product is and if this should be a good engineering product or a good customer product. And you have such an interesting mix of founders and I'm sure there's a lot of lively conversation. A good product isn't a good product unless someone can use it uh, and really understand it. One of our advisors on Wednesday said that his accountant, who is his 78-year-old mother, loves our product and understands our product. And he is, that's good software. If she can understand it, everyone can understand it. Uh, so that's the kind of product that we want to build, the type of product that has supports complexity, but is simple in nature, doesn't require an, an owner's manual. They can go in and click around for five minutes and be like, okay, I get the gist. And maybe there's some bells and whistles and other advanced tools that someone can teach me, but I can do 90% of my work without that much of a tutorial. And so that's what we're shooting for. I think an impressive part of your business is the partnerships that you guys have built. But I always wonder, thinking out into the future, what is this world? How does this world end up? Do we end up with one platform to rule them all, or do we end up with a Zapier type situation? I think you really need platforms to work well together because people have different strengths and weaknesses, and clients have very different needs. And to serving a $20 billion pension fund, while there's a lot of overlap, they have different tools that they need than a much smaller individual or family or an advisor serving those folks. And so across our clients, different clients will ask, allocate to different asset classes. Different clients will use different business intelligence tools and different ways to store their documents. So we think that you need a lot of the connective tissue and stitching between those different platforms. That's a lot of what we're building is the ability to like pull data from lots of different sources and push data to lots of different sources. And I think the more that platform can work collaboratively together, the more that the end client is able to use tools that really help them do their work and not get shoehorned into a B plus solution or B solution all around, but they can choose the A solutions that really allow them to do the things that they need to do in the different areas that they operate. So with all of your conversations with clients and just, I'm curious about your general thinking on your own. Has it given you any insights into how the RIA space itself is changing right now? We see a lot of movement. It's 
teams leaving major banks and starting their own RAAs. Those RAAs then getting bought or buying other RAAs and becoming bigger RAAs. So it's like this unbundling and rebundling of these type of services. And firms are trying to go from an RAA to a multifamily office. What's the difference? Basically like higher touch service and more service around other things that might not just be managing investments. And so you'll see like large firms that will bring in-house accountants and tax teams and trust and state attorneys and leverage software like ours in order to be able to provide more. And so it's a really fascinating ecosystem. Uh, It will be interesting to watch what happens over the next two to five years uh, in terms of investment and consolidation. You're also seeing a lot of liquidity in the RAA space that you didn't see before. So it's firms that are coming in and buying minority or majority ownership in an RAA. And then the partners who have been there for could be two years, could be 20 years and having major liquidity events. And so that as the ownership profile of RAA shifts, it'll be interesting to see how the, how these organizations are run changes. Uh, and if some of them become like more professional, more focused on other ways to generate fees or able to just like access different kinds of products and different services for their end clients. Do you have any thoughts on the larger fintech space about movement outside of your own vertical? There's a lot happening in the reporting space. And so there's firms that people think are clear leaders. There's firms that are trying to challenge those leaders. There's a lot of like different opinions in the space as well. You might talk to someone that absolutely loves a provider and then talk to the next person. They're like, yeah, I use that provider. I really didn't like it. So I think there isn't really a one size fits all. Do you think to. there is a, any competitive advantage there? Is there? Are there moats that these folks can build? Definitely moats. The longer or the like, more you listen to your clients and the more you solve your clients' problems, the more you'll, when the next client comes and asks you like, hey, do you support this? You're like, oh yeah, here's our tool for that. And do you support this? And yeah, here's our tool for that. Or no, we decide not to support this for a really specific reason because we think that doesn't serve clients well. Uh, So I think that matters. We also love when organizations are organizations that are still thoughtful and innovate and have a heart around what they're doing. And so we think that's often apparent in some of the partnerships that will strike. Who do you think is innovating? I think you'll see folks like Adapar that are continuing to innovate. Vanilla's innovating and bringing some interesting solutions to the estate planning world that historically hasn't seen that type of innovations. And there's different solutions within the subscription document space where that's been something that's been really painful for folks. Mostly that has been focused on the GP side of bringing that technology to the asset managers that are bringing on LPs, but there's certainly a lot of room on the LP side as well. And it's essentially places where people and industries rely on paper spreadsheets and the Microsoft Office suites that can then be digitized and can reduce a lot of the friction of being involved in this space, which really opens it up to more participants uh, and better decisions in the future. How do you see regulation helping or hindering fintech space? Someone at BlackRock that told us that they never missed a crisis and grew really through regulation. It's something that we're taking a bigger look at because there are a lot of changing regulations and changing requirements for firms. And there are some things that are starting to become pretty onerous that we might be able to support and make a lot easier for folks and could be a good way to grow by solving problems that other people aren't yet solving and that some people may not know about. So the more that we can, I think, lead those kind of conversations and help people get around or get over barriers that are being put into the industry, I think the more we can be pragmatically helpful as a firm. 
Where do you personally spend your time day to day and how has that changed over the life of Arch? At the very beginning, I was our salesperson and our operations person. It's you'd onboard and you'd see me and then maybe I put on a different hat and then I help you with something else. And it, it was being a jack of all and supporting anything that a client needs. Uh, I've been lucky to be able to put really good people in place who now are able to run our entire operations team and onboard clients. And we have specialists in different parts of the customer journey. And is also lucky to find some really great people to support on the business development and sales side. And I now spend a lot of my time with that team and especially on a lot of our larger, more strategic engagements and still love being with clients, hearing from clients, understanding how clients are using the software, what people need, what problems they're solving and what people need from here. And then being able to also play a bit of a role on our product team as well. Although there's now... Uh, it was like freshly staffed with a couple of new people, one coming from an internal promotion and one coming externally. And so while they need me less, I think it's still a great place to spend time to try to connect some of what we're hearing on the sales side with what we're building on the engineering side. And how are you thinking about AI right now? We think there are some really good tools like the summaries that we can introduce leveraging AI and that it can be used in really pragmatic ways. It's not a one-size-fit-all. There also is a lot of buzz around AI, and some of it is more smoke than action. And so we want to just really understand like what AI can do for our clients and then help them utilize it in the most pragmatic ways and also cut through some of the noise. What do you think would be useful going forward? I think one of the big things is what we help clients do is have control over their data. And it's a data set that's really hard for them to, one, aggregate with the same kind of structure, and then two, marry with the outside world. And that's where we can build AI tools that allow them to use it on their own data to understand the insights within their data, and also marry it with what's happening in the world, what do you need to know about, how does a headline affect you and your portfolio, because you have a lot of exposure in the tech world versus you have a lot of exposure in the oil and natural gas world. And help people connect those levels of reset insights and analysis. And that's something that like AI can be pretty good at helping with. Ryan Eisenman, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your great insights with us today. Joe, thank you. It was great spending time with you. Appreciate your questions. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share it with your friends. Thank you.